Our subject tonight is a look at Satan and uh, what the Bible teaches about Satan. There are some books in the Bible, I think, that give us more light about that subject than others. Uh, Second Corinthians always seemed to me to be a, uh, an especially rich passage to help us understand something, some things about how Satan works. But tonight we're going to look at the book of Job. And uh, we've been looking at wisdom literature. And so in a second lesson from Job, we want to go back and look at what the book says about Satan. And actually, I, I think the more I read the book of Job and the more I consider it in light of other passages, I think it is an extremely important help to us in getting straight the reality of our enemy. I'm going to tell you now, we're going to read verses. I just got the same book you've got. I don't know anything more than the Bible says. But <clears throat> uh, there are some principles that are taught in the scriptures. I may not be able to explain the logistics of it all. Uh, I, I don't know always how certain things might work. Uh, I believe that angels work in this world. I don't know how they do that. I can't explain all the logistics of it. And uh, I believe Satan works in this world. And I think the book of Job gives us an insight into uh, the, uh, the way in which perhaps men are and have been tempted through the years. In the first chapter of Job, we find the, uh, let's see here. All right. Well, you know, I don't like that chart that much. Uh, in fact, I was thinking when, uh, I think it's turned on. Sorry about that. I was thinking when I was looking at that chart a minute ago, it's rather dramatic. And if somebody in the audience is scared of snakes, that's probably that's a chart I need to change. So I apologize for that. And I hope that uh, maybe it uh, won't be too much of a, uh, a hindrance to us. I've been here two days and I've broken everything. I used to think that I was paranoid that machines hate me, and now I realize it's just true. So, let's start over. Try it again, whatever you say. Let's start. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you working with this. All right. I think that's going to take us to the very start of this thing. And it's a. <laughs> nobody wants to hear me preach last night's lesson again. That was the longest 12 hours of their life. As it is, can I, I apologize. You're fine. Can I intervene in this? Let's see, we got a way to blot this out a minute. Well, I will see Yeah, let's see, that's way down there. Okay, yes sir, right there. Thank you very much. How about that? It's like downtown. Just got to have the right man. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that very much. All right, that was smooth. Uh, we're talking about the devil in the book of Job. <clears throat> First chapter, we read about the enemy. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Which comest thou? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. And the Lord said to Satan, 
Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth God fear Job for, I'm sorry, does Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? And uh, thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. You put forth your hand now and touch you all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. And so Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And then in the second chapter, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From which comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like unto him in all the earth, a perfect man, an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. And still he holds fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Yea, skin for skin, all that a man hath he'll give to save his life. Put forth now thine hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. And so Satan is introduced in the book of Job in these two passages. The word Satan, the name Satan, the, the term Satan, is uh, one of those transliterated words. They just bring it over from uh, one language to another. This is a Hebrew word, Satan, and it means uh, literally an opponent. Uh, it's uh, the idea of an enemy. An adversary. Uh, it's um, used, I think, for the first time over in Numbers uh, chapter 22. And that's the story of Balaam and how that uh, Balaam, you remember, in rebellion uh, had uh, desired to uh, help out the king of Moab. And while he's on the way, uh, the angel of the Lord meets him and is said to be uh, an adversary to him, a Satan to him, literally. Uh, it's used in, uh, maybe my favorite example is uh, over in 1 Samuel 29. This, you remember, is the context where David uh, is on the run from Saul. Saul's days are numbered. He's about to face his last battle. Uh, David had to leave Israel, and now here he is among the Philistines. He's been taken in by one of the lords of the Philistines, a guy named Achish. And poor old Achish, he's just completely out of his depth here. Uh, he, he's convinced that David is his loyal servant. And so uh, here they are lining up to go to battle. Uh, that old Mount Gilboa to fight Saul. And the other lords of the Philistines pull up and they say, Is that who I think it is? Is that old Mr. David killed his 10,000? You're kidding me. He's, yeah, that's my loyal, faithful servant. He's, uh, Achish says, he's estranged from Saul, you know. They said, yeah, I know how you can get back with him. The heads of all these men here. Send him wherever you keep him. We don't want him here. He will be an adversary to us. Now the same word is used there. So the word has a variety of meanings. 
Uh, but in Revelation chapter 12, we find the most, uh, I suppose, uh, commonly thought of use of the word. Uh, that's where you remember the picture of the uh, great battle between uh, good and evil and uh, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels and that great dragon, verse 9, was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And this picture that's drawn we describe, he describes the great enemy of goodness in, uh, in these terms. He calls him the great dragon, this intimidating, ferocious character. He is described as that old serpent. And I, I knew good and well that wasn't just a snake in Genesis 3. And sure enough, that was uh, someone else, the devil Diabolos, this idea of the slanderer, and Satan, the adversary. We're talking about a particular individual here, aren't we? And when the Bible refers to Satan, we normally think of this great enemy of goodness, the great enemy of God and his people. Let me ask you a question before we go further. Do you think that Job knew about the devil? I'm not even asking, did he know about the interaction between the devil and Jehovah? Uh, as recorded there in chapters 1 and 2. D did he know about Satan, period? Oddly enough, I, I, there, there's a commentary written by Burton Kaufman, who's a brother in Christ. He's gone now, I think, but he wrote a commentary, I think, on every book of the Bible, a good student. And he made this comment. He said uh, in his commentary on Job, he said, the thing missing from this whole central section of Job is the knowledge of Satan. That leaves Job and his friends apparently in total ignorance regarding the part that Satan had in the fall of mankind. I just can't believe that a fellow that smart would make a statement like that. You know, when you read the book of Job, there are several references there that uh, are hard to miss. We, we put Job in the patriarchal age, I think the story that is. Uh, and, and it may well have been written before the story in Genesis was written. I acknowledge that. But I hardly think that means that uh, Job then could know about the story of the fall and so on. How do you explain references like 418? This is uh, Eliphaz. You know, that's, um, <clears throat> remember Eliphaz had a dream. I call that, that chapter the, uh, his, I had a dream speech, you know. And he has this very strange dream. I don't know where it came from. I don't think it came from God. Uh, and uh, anyway, in that, as a result of that information, he says, Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. Now, what's that talking about? If he's not talking about the fall, I don't know what he could be talking about. In 1515, again, Eliphaz in his second speech refers, I, I believe, to the same thing, different language a little bit. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones. And the heavens are not pure in his sight. He's saying, Job, how can you think as a man you can be right with God when the angels were charged with sin? 26 is uh, open to different ways of interpretation. This is Mr. Brenton's translation, and you may be familiar with that. It's an English translation of the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. So uh, a little different. The text is a little different. Uh, and in this passage... 
He writes about the barriers of heaven fear him, and by a command he has slain the apostate dragon. I think the old King James reads something like he has formed the crooked serpent. So you can tell there's some question about the, the, uh, the translation there. But uh, if Mr. Brenton is correct, if the Septuagint's correct, boy, that sure does sound like the devil. But in, in 31 and verse 33, Job's last speech, you remember that's, uh, we talked about this last night, you remember it from your studies. This is Job's uh, putting himself under an oath, really. And he says over and again, you know, they've accused me of all kinds of things. If I've been guilty of this, then may God do this. And sometimes he doesn't include the, the curse. It's just understood. But Job goes through a list of things. And he said, if I cover my transgression as Adam by hiding mine iniquity in my bosom. Don't you think he's referring there? I mean, the word Adam, they tell me, can mean sometimes mankind. But it's used primarily as the name the name of Adam or the name of a city, I find no reason to believe he's not talking about Adam the first man. And he pictures there the picture we find in Genesis chapter 3 of Adam after his sin hiding among the trees of the garden. Now my point is this. If these people knew about the fall of the angels and they knew about the fall of Adam, you don't think they knew about the devil? That's very strange. I think the opposite is true. It's obvious that they knew about Satan. And I'll tell you what they knew. They knew that Satan was real. Again, we've tried to make this point. We must not, as some will try to do, make the book of Job some sort of a cartoon. Job is a real man. His friends were real. And the devil is real. When we find in this passage the dialogue between God and Satan, that's no personification. That's a real being. Any more than it was in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 when the Lord was tempted for 40 days and he had those interactions with Satan. It was a real being. In the 12th chapter of Matthew, uh, the Lord there uh, is uh, charged with being in league with Beelzebub, the prince of devils. The Lord knew about the prince of devils. And that's, you remember, where Jesus quotes Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> remember that? Uh, no, where he says that a house divided cannot stand. He's talking about one who had a kingdom, one who was a prince over an army. This is a real being. He was there from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said in John chapter 8. An important part of our lesson today is to stress the fact that we face a personal and all too real adversary. Let's think a minute about what the Bible, what the book of Job particularly teaches us about that adversary. But if you go back to the text we read a moment ago in chapter 1, one thing that's obvious is that Satan is associated in the book of Job with the sons of God. Now that expression is used several times in the Bible. In the book of Job a few times. And I think in the book of Job... The expression is used of non-human beings. I think sometimes it is used of human beings, clearly. But in chapter 38, when he talks about how that uh, the morning stars sang together at creation and all the sons of God shouted for joy, it seems he's referring to a time before there was a human being, but the sons of God shouted for joy. 
I believe he's talking about angels there. And I believe he's talking about angels in, jo in, in, rather in Job chapter 1. Uh, some of the modern speech translations or some of the later translations that uh, are thought translations instead of necessarily being careful with the words, but they just go ahead and promote that idea, the heavenly beings, as the RSV said, or the NRSV. And um, as one said, the NIV says the angels. So I think they're right on this occasion, at least in their understanding. Uh, is, uh, is Satan an angel? Uh, what do we say about that? Well, the only time I can remember that Satan is identified directly as an angel is in the figurative language of Revelation. You may remember something I don't, and feel free to share that with me. But in Revelation 9 and verse 11, he's called there the angel of the bottomless pit. So at least in that passage, he is referred to as an angel. And looking at uh, what we know and what we can tell about the origin of Satan, and by the way, we acknowledge the fact that really we piece a lot of things together. I'm not personally convinced uh, that, uh, that Isaiah 14 is going to give us the answer to where Satan came from. He pretty clearly indicates there he's talking about somebody else. If there's some double meaning, maybe, but I don't feel comfortable enough getting on that limb. Or Ezekiel 28, same thing. But what we do know about the origin of Satan, I think we can deduce from certain facts. And by the way, maybe there's a purpose in that. I heard an old fellow say one time, you know, there may be a reason why we don't just have a chapter that tells us all about the origin of Satan. Maybe, maybe the Lord doesn't want us to be too fascinated with the origin of Satan. And that may be true. But, but what can we know? Well, Colossians chapter 1 uh, and verse 16 tells us that by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So what do we learn here? There's one creator, and everyone else is, is creature, including the devil. The devil is not an eternal being. All things were created by him. All principalities all powers that are in heaven and in earth. It's a little later on in the letter that Paul writes about the triumph of Christ. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, he writes that Christ, by his victory in the, over death, spoiled principalities and powers. Same word there. Uh, maybe human principalities are in mind in chapter 15, but not uh, verse 15, but not exclusively. The principalities, uh, even those created good, certainly turned. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, some of those that were created by God and God, cre God created all things good, some of those who were created good sinned against God. Peter makes the point, you remember, 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So what do we know about the origin of Satan? We know that God made all things and he made all things good. And at some point there were those angels 
who sinned. We assess Satan to be a part of that number. And they were to be set aside for punishment. I had a lady call me here a while back. And uh, she said, I know you probably told me the answer to this before. Uh, but where did the devil come from? So I, I started out, and maybe I took a little more time and said a little bit better than I did just now. But I tried to go through the passages that we just read. And when I got through, she said, so you don't know either? <laughs> and, and I said, no, ma'am, I don't know either. If, if it's not that, I don't know. But I, I think there is a point to be made there. That there are rebellious angels. And God uses them also to work a certain purpose. Somebody's described the devil as the uh, head of the ministry of temptation. Or as one fellow called him, God's buzzard. I like that. You know, buzzards are filthy, but they sure do serve a purpose. And in God's purpose, even the rebels work ultimately His purpose, not to their credit. It's like uh, the passage in Isaiah chapter 10 that we are familiar with, where uh, Isaiah uh, points out that Israel is begging for judgment and it's going to come. And it'll come through a source that might be surprising. Uh, o Assyrian, the, uh, the rod of mine anger... The staff in their hand is the rod of my indignation. And I will send him against a hypocritical nation. This is uh, Isaiah 10 verse 6. And against a people of my wrath. And I will give him a charge to take the spoil. And to uh, take the prey. And to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Verse 7. Howbeit he meaneth not so. Neither does his heart think so. It's in his heart to destroy, to cut off nations, not a few. There's a parallel there to me. That the king of Assyria didn't have any interest in serving God, had no respect for God. He had his own ambitions, but God used him as a rod in his hand to work his purpose. And then in turn, as Isaiah says, I'm going to punish him. That was true, I think, about Pharaoh of Egypt, wasn't it? God gained his glory over the Pharaoh and then punished him. And certainly God has made it clear that uh, there's a day coming when the devil and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire. In fact, the Lord said hell was made for the devil and for his angels. So Satan is associated with the sons of God. In the second place, we learn from the book of Job that Satan is clearly subject to and accountable to and works under the permission of, and within the limits set by God. Uh, it does remind us a bit. You know, he, he talks about this context of the sons of God coming, as it were, giving account, maybe getting their assignment. Maybe there's some uh, accommodative language in, in Job, but that's the picture there. Uh, and, uh, of course, the angels are, uh, as we said earlier, as the book of Hebrews teaches us. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who are the heirs of salvation. I believe in angels, and I believe angels work in the world today. Um, if somebody were to ask me, uh, you ever seen one? I think maybe my best answer would be not that I know of. Uh, but 
I don't believe that angels are sent to us to whisper information to us. We have the information we need. How they work, what their work entails, how they get from one place to the other, all those things. I don't know about that. All I know is what I read in the scriptures, but I do believe angels work. And in the same way, I believe likewise the devil is at work in this world. And he likewise works by permission and within limits. Uh, Brother Haley in his commentary on Job wrote the following. He said, Satan is a created being, and though he possesses intelligence and reason, he is neither omniscient nor omnipotent. He is limited by God in his attributes and actions. He is among that class described by Paul as principalities and powers, Ephesians 6. Another fellow wrote, Satan may be chief mischief maker of the universe, but he's a mere creature, puny compared with the Lord. He can only do what God permits him to do. And that's right. Absolutely. Again, we can say it again. Satan is not God. He's not a God. He is rather a fallen being whom God allows to work within limits for God's own ideas and for his own purposes. But the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 reminds us that temptation is limited. And likewise, Satan thus is limited. Another way in which the book of Job describes Satan and another piece of information about Satan that comes through the book of Job is that Satan has a rather obvious uh, disgust for human beings. Uh, you know, the, the earth is his intense focus. Uh, Satan is interested in the earth. There's a, a quote that I found uh, from one of these fellows writing about Job. He said, uh, unlike Job, Satan has no responsibilities. All he has to do all day long is go gadding about the world. He is a restless, shiftless, roving hoodlum. He's like a delinquent kid who comes slinking home in the wee hours of the morning, his face ashen with dissipation, and when asked by his dad uh, where, what he's been up to, he answers, well, what's it to you? That's not exactly what I read in the book of Job. How about you? No, I don't believe that's true at all. In fact, if I understand this fellow, he's almost calling the devil lazy. Now, I'm certainly not the devil's advocate, but let me just say this. Uh, he's a lot of things. He ain't lazy. The idea that I read in the book of Job is of Satan traversing the earth, looking for whom he may destroy. He is, as Peter said, a, a, a raging lion, going about seeking whom he may devour. Satan's work is purposeful. It is exhaustive. It's constant. And one thing that comes through in Job is that he clearly despises his prey. You know, when he speaks about man, he says, oh, you have confidence in Job. Is, does Job serve you for nothing? Are you so foolish as to believe that Job really loves you? Oh, skin for skin, all that a man hath he'll give to save his life. You can tell he despises Job. Doesn't it remind you a little bit of Goliath? David was his opponent. But more than that, you know, when, when Goliath looked at David, he, he, he asked the Israelites, he said, do you think I'm a dog? You send a boy out here with a stick? He had disdain and contempt for David. And I believe the devil has a contempt for man. Just this, this, this worthless bag of dust and bones. You mean he can save you? He can rather uh, please you? 
He can serve you and I can't. Me, a great spirit, and he, this loathsome creature. I think we can find a, an obvious connection between the loathing that Satan has for Job and for men and his pride. Isn't that what um, Paul said about Satan? His condemnation was pride. And so it is that Satan, loathing Job and loathing mankind, finding it especially galling that this half animal can somehow please God when he can't, goes about his work. And he attacks Job in, uh, in a powerful way. Actually, several ways. How does Satan attack Job as revealed in the book of Job? Well, one thing that he does is he works through men. We could say that he works through these friends who were well-meaning but so terribly off base. And we talked about that last night. But obviously in the story, he also works through lawless men. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans came raiding and stole and murdered uh, the property and people of Job. Uh, well, maybe that doesn't seem so unusual to us. After all, Satan is a tempter, and if men are tempted to steal and to, to kill, well, that's just the nature of sin. But what I find to be fascinating is, uh, you know, these fellows are not just uh, random uh, marauders. You look at the book of Job and you see the precision here. Here are these people who come all this way to attack one man at this particular time. Now, I can't explain to you exactly how Satan arranged that, but you can be sure it was arranged. I do not believe Satan can force anybody to do anything against their will. God doesn't choose to. Satan cannot. But that's what happened. That these men did their meanness at this place at this time. Now that says something about the power of Satan. I'll tell you another thing that we find. He works through what we might call the forces of nature. Um, a great wind that comes along and destroys the house that Job's children are in. And the fire of God, as it's called, that uh, comes likewise to destroy. By the way, if you want to know what the fire of God is, the pulpit commentary, Mr. Rawlinson, gives you the answer. He says, the fire of God has fallen from heaven. The fire of God is undoubtedly lightning. And he gives the reference in Numbers 11 and in uh, 1 Kings 1 about Elijah. And he says, this Satan under permission might wield as he is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. And then you read uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown and you find out that the fire of God is not lightning. Uh, because for some reason he thinks that'd be too strong. He rather thinks it's the burning wind of Arabia, whatever that is, he says, because after all, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So I hope I cleared that up for you. But whatever it was, uh, I think it'd be something that insurance companies would call, they'd still call an act of God. Forces of nature. You mean Satan sent that storm? Well... God sent it at Satan's urging. Whatever you want to say, he's certainly connected with it. you believe that Satan sends the storms? 
or he's behind the storms. Well, he was in this case. You think that Satan is responsible for the robberies and murder? Well, he was in this case. And beyond that, we find, of course, the disease and the pain. We talked about that yesterday as well. In chapter 2 and verse 7, So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And we talked about the agony that Job lived under for the whole time of his temptation. And Satan's purpose, obviously, was to crush Job. Uh, Brother Pratt wrote about this passage, that physical pain and loss of health can be temptations from Satan. They can be extremely difficult to tolerate and very discouraging spiritually. As one deals with the physical pain itself, he has increasingly less emotional and mental strength. It becomes increasingly difficult to think clearly. You can believe that's exactly where Satan wants to lead you. But the shocking word, maybe as shocking as any verse in the whole book of Job, is that passage in 2.6. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in thine hand, but save his life. I, I mean, if we read that with comprehension, it is like a slap in the face. The Lord said about his beloved Job to Satan, he's in your hand. Did, um, did the devil make Job sick? Does he make men sick? Does the, Job, does, does the devil cause cancer? <laughs> well, I know what he did to Job here. Now, before we go further, I, I, I thought that uh, Derek Kidner had a really good point about this passage. He said, we're not spared the jolt of the words, but the prologue makes clear that this indeed is permission, not abdication. In both of these chapters, it is God who sets the limits of the test. We don't think that God just handed Job over and then forgot about him. All the while, there were limits about what the devil could do. But nevertheless, he was allowed to work. Now, I think there are reasons on God's part for that. And I may not know them all, but I'm sure it had something to do with the fact that God was trying to make Job a better man. And he was drawing on the strength of Job to increase in strength. He was vindicating God's trust in him. The reason why he was allowed to be tempted this way is because God had that confidence in him and, and he was thus honored by God's confidence. It's a little bit like Matthew 15 that story about the Lord uh, and uh, being visited by the Syrophoenician woman. And she has uh, a daughter who's in very bad shape. And she comes to Jesus for help and asks him for help for her daughter. And he doesn't answer a word. And then uh, the disciples say, Lord, won't you send this woman away, a Gentile? And then the Lord tells her that he's only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the, and the woman keeps asking. And finally he says to her, you know, it's not fit to take the children's bread and cast them to dogs. I've heard some preachers sometimes say that Jesus called this woman a dog and insulted her. He did no such thing. But he did not immediately respond to her request. And I believe he is drawing out of her something great, and he gets it. And she says, yea, Lord, truth, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs. And he said, that's right. 
and be it as you will. And I think in some ways that's what God does here in this, in this agony. As he draws from Job this greatness. And um, it's like the old saying we've all heard, God picks the strongest backs for the heaviest loads. And so if you have that load to carry, it's because God knows you can. And because whatever plan he has, it's intended for your good. While the devil's trying to crush you, the Lord wants to bless you. And so we see, I think, in this, the working here, this dynamic, if you will, between God and man and Satan. As we mentioned the other night, we ought to always remember this too, that the whole time that Job was being tempted, I believe it likewise was painful to God as his father as well. But it's this, this dynamic of God allowing Satan to tempt man and then man responding to God that we find in the book of Job. And we ask this question, is this a unique event? Or is it something that's very rare? I don't know where I got that idea as a young student, just first trying to read the Bible. But somehow I got that idea. I don't remember anybody telling me that. That this is a very special case where Satan was involved in the, um, the tempting of an individual. There is a belief about God. Uh, it's formerly known as deism. And it goes something like this. That, uh, oh yes, there was a creator. Well, duh, of course there was. You have to admit that. But we don't want a God involved in our daily life. So we're, our belief is that God indeed created the world. And then he just sort of uh, like uh, taking a giant boulder and rolling it off a hill. After that, he was hands off at it wherever. He had no control over it, no interest in it. I don't believe that at all. But there are some people that I think that look at Satan that way. Satan is not God, but they think about Satan's work as being really uh, getting man off track at the garden, and from there everything else has happened, and he's pretty well hands off. In fact, one fellow wrote, Satan is not omnipresent and thus is unlikely to be personally tempting individuals. You sure about that? Is that what the Bible says? I heard one brother a brother in Christ. I've never met him. I read his books. I've read several of them. And most of them are really good, in my humble opinion. But he was talking about Satan one day, and he was talking about how that there are preachers who get around scaring people about Satan, and how awful that was. He thought that you're making a god out of, of Satan when you talk about him being able to tempt men and, and send storms and do things of this nature. And he got so worked up, he said... Uh, I'm convinced that if God wiped the devil out tomorrow, the world wouldn't notice. And I thought, what, what book are you reading from? I don't believe that. I believe he's not God, but I sure don't believe that. So is the case of, of, of this, this, this uh, dynamic between God, Job, and Satan, God, man, and Satan, a unique thing to the book of Job? It was in the garden, was it not? Now, there were some unique aspects to this, and here was uh, Satan speaking uh, through this, uh, this snake and all that. But it's still this idea of Satan being allowed to tempt men, and then men have to make their choice about what they're going to do. Uh, maybe you're thinking with me about that passage over in, in 1, Samuel, uh, 1 Kings, I'm sorry, chapter 22. And it's the story of Ahab. And uh, oh, Ahab, God loved Ahab. He was a rascal, but God loved him. 
and tried, tried to help him. He married Jezebel. He was a weak-willed fellow with an awful wife. Uh, and, and he just he made one mistake after another and, and one blunder after another. But God continued to work with him. But he had one last chance. He didn't know it was his last chance. Chapter 22. You know, you remember, uh, he wants Ramoth Gilead back. That's a city there on the border of Israel and, and Syria. And Syria controls it and he wants it. And so he goes and he calls for Jehoshaphat, the king down in Judah. And he says, will you help me? And Jehoshaphat for some reason says, yes. And why Jehoshaphat... Uh, had such fellowship with this evil family. I don't have any explanation for He was a good man who made a terrible choice, and there are a lot of great lessons that come from the mess that that made. But anyway, so Jehoshaphat comes up, and they put the show on for him, and all of these priests, no doubt, from Dan and Bethel, uh, they all are there. They all say, oh, the Lord is going to bless this. And Jehoshaphat says, is there anybody here besides these priests of Dan and Bethel? that maybe can speak for the Lord. And that's when Ahab said, well, there's one guy. It's Micaiah, the son of Emlem, and I hate him. He never says anything good about me. He always tells me bad news. Oh, let's, let's hear from him. So they call him, and the guy that calls him says, now look, the king wants to go, and everybody says go, so you say go. And Micaiah comes out, and uh, he says, Go. And uh, Ahab can tell. He's just mocking him. And he says, I t I've told you before. You tell me the truth. You want the truth? Here's the truth. I see Israel like sheep on a mountainside with no shepherd. And Ahab knew what that meant. And so he said, I told you he hates me. And then Micaiah says, okay. Here's the word of the Lord. This is verse 19 of chapter 22. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, another on another. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? He said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. He said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. And behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these the pro thy prophets, that the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. That reminds me a lot of the book of Job, doesn't it, you? And here is the devil, and he's given permission to do this, and then the man's got to make up his mind. Am I going to believe these lies, or am I going to believe the prophet of God? And unlike Job, then we find Ahab choosing unwisely. And the result of that is, of course, he is destroyed. He, uh, he, he tells uh, the men, he says, Now you keep this Micaiah, you keep him with the bread and water of affliction till I get back. And Micaiah says, You're not listening to me. You know, if you come back, the Lord hadn't talked to me. You're not coming back. But he had to make up his mind. He made his choice, and the result was what it was. I think that's the same thing. You know, we could go to, to David. Back to David in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. You remember this passage as well. Um, in 1 Chronicles 21, 
And uh, in, in verse 1, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Um, if you look at the parallel account in 2 Samuel, you'll find that it was the Lord who moved this matter. How did the Lord do that? By allowing Satan to put a test before David. And so Satan is allowed and the man has to choose to give in or not give in. And as a result of that, he stands or falls before God. In this case, David failed the test. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, going back to Saul, and uh, you may not uh, agree with this, but I, you know, as I read that story, and it's a rather unusual story uh, in one way, and yet it sounds very familiar in another way. After Saul had made his mess, after he had been uh, rejected by God, he had, he had been um, it failed to uh, destroy the Amalekites. In chapter 16 and verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold, an evil spirit from God troubles thee. And let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is cunning, a cunning player on the harp. And it shall come to pass that when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he will play his hand and thou shalt be well. And Saul said, do it. What's going on here? Is this depression? Somebody said, well, if it is, I think it has a, a connection with Satan on this occasion. Whether it's depression or whether it's bitterness or whether it's jealousy or whether it's resentment. There is a way of thinking that is devilish. And God allows Satan to tempt Saul at this time. He's not going to be king. Or no, his lineage is not going to continue, that is. And he's got a choice to make. Am I going to accept this punishment or am I going to rebel against it? And the devil is there to try to pull him one way. And Saul at first fights it. David is sent for. And you remember how that David's playing was able to help Saul. And I asked the question. I don't know exactly what he was playing. You suppose it was old Susanna? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so as the music that reminds of Jehovah is played, Saul's mind is brought in this direction. But over time, the evil won out. And as you continue reading in chapter 19, you remember that occasion when uh, Saul... Uh, uh, is uh, an evil spirit, verse 9, from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house. He had a javelin in his hand. David played for him, but it did not help. And Saul cast the javelin at him, and so Saul has given his answer what he's going to do. But I think it's the same pattern that we find in the book of Job. If we had time, we'd go over to Abimelech. You know, Abimelech was certainly, uh, he was a skunk. He was a, uh, we call him a judge, but uh, we understand he was a leading figure. He wound up being a leader, but he certainly was a man about whom we admire nothing. He was the son of a great man. He was son 71. You know? And he figured his chances weren't very good of uh, going to the top if uh, nothing changed. And so he got the men of Shechem to go in with him. And they murdered 70 of his brothers, or at least they tried to murder 70. They got 69. And as a result of that murder... God uh, sent an evil spirit 
Verse 23 of chapter 9 says, Between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and before it was over, they wiped each other out, or at least they both were destroyed in the process. I think we find the same kind of pattern here. One more that I'll mention quickly, if you'll let me. In the book of John, the 12th chapter, we find in John chapter 12 uh, a story that concerns Judas. And it's interesting when you read John 12, uh, noting the timing here. We remember this story. Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which uh, had been dead, uh, whom he had raised, uh, was there with him on this occasion. We find out later it wasn't Lazarus's house. It was the house of a guy named Simon the leper. But anyway, they made a supper. Martha served. Lazarus was there. And Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And uh, that's when, John says, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, said, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare that which was put therein. Now, of course, John didn't know that at the time. But by the time he's inspired to write this, these details have become clear. And Jesus said, Let, the, let her alone. Against the day of my burying, she hath kept this. The poor you have with you always, me you have not with you always. Now, it's interesting, as this story is told again in, in Mark 14, we find that it's told here in a measure out of order because we find there, Mark 14 begins, two days was the feast of the Passover of unleavened bread, of the chief priest. And the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. They said, not on the feast day, lest there should be an uproar of the people. And then he tells the story about uh, Mary's sacrifice and about the disciples. He doesn't mention Judas particularly here, but we know it was him who led the way, who objected to this. And then the very next thing in verse 10 is that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to, bet uh, to betray him. And he promised them that he would betray the Lord and they promised him an amount of money. I think the reason why this story of the dinner, which took place several days before, is placed here by Mark is because this was sort of the last straw for Judas. I think he had already decided to check out. I don't know when. He had been skimming from the, the money. He was sort of thinking, no doubt, hey, this, uh, I'm, I'm about to leave here. I'm tired of this and I deserve some of this money. It belongs to me. You know, what are you going to do with the money if you're going to be walking around with Jesus all the time? I don't know where he hid it, but anyway, he's skimming money from them. And now we find that Jesus rebukes him and, and embarrasses him no little. And the next thing you know, that's the last straw, and, and I'm going to fix him, and so he does. And, and here's the point, that if you look over in, in Luke's account, I believe it is, in Luke chapter 22, I'll tell you how Luke describes all of this uh, embarrassment and pride. Luke 22, and uh, there in verse 1, uh, 
the feast is drawing near, and the chief priest and the scribes saw how they might kill him. They feared the people, and Satan entered into Judas's heart. And uh, he made his bargain. Um, we ought to think about that. Can I say something to you, and you won't think that I'm trying to insult you? We, we don't know each other that well, and so I'm sure I don't have any idea. But if there's somebody in this audience right now that is... Um, Touchy, thin-skinned, easy to be insulted. If there's anybody here that sees in that description themselves, can I tell you why that is? It is because you are proud and because the devil is winning that battle in your heart. Now you might say, oh, no, not me. I, I have low self-esteem. That's a form of pride. Because it, it, it connects together in this way, that, that whether I think too high or too low of myself, it's about me. Now, you might ask me, well, how do you know so much about that? Because I got that problem. I don't think I'm particularly thin-skinned, but I tell you, I certainly have been at times. I remember several years ago, um, and I won't go into the details, we're out of time, but there was a, uh, I was talking to a fellow, he wasn't even a brother, he was another guy in, and uh, anyway, I asked him a question, honest question, and he shot back at me with an answer that I thought was rather disrespectful and cutting. And, and I, I, I held my tongue, but I didn't like it. And driving home, I didn't like it. And the next morning when I woke up, I didn't like it. And about two weeks later, something happened, and I thought about it again. And at that moment, I had a revelation that hit me in the face like a brick. Wesley, you are eaten up with pride. If you were not, you would not have thought about that five seconds. And it hurt me. Because if you'd ask me, hey, why don't you make a list of your faults? Okay, I can do that. And, but pride wouldn't have been one of them. And there it was. And it made me so ashamed. Pride thinks that it's really a big deal how people talk to me and how they get it right and treat me right. What difference does it make? Why am I important? And I believe that we can find in these details the pride of Judas that might have been a big part of why he made the awful decisions that he made. But you can be sure of this behind it all. It's the devil working on our mind. However he does that, I don't know. But he did it with Judas. He was trying to do it with Job. He did it with David. He did it with Ahab. And I believe he'll do it with us. And so Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. Not of this world. It's dangerous. For us to think about temptation as accidental or incidental, it is purposeful, it is intentional. When it comes to the persecution of the saints, Paul arrived at church uh, at Smyrna and he would say, the devil will cast some of you into prison. I believe that's exactly what would happen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes to this young church, he had to leave in a hurry because things got uh, hot in, in Thessalonica. And Paul thought it best for everybody if he would leave. 
And he writes back to them and he lets them know that I, I would rather be there with you. I tried already to come and to be with you over and again. I don't know what it was that hindered Paul from coming to be back there at Thessalonica, whether it was political, whether it was sickness, whether it was the weather, whatever it might be. But I'll tell you what Paul said. He said, Satan has hindered us. I believe that. Luke chapter 13 uh, and uh, in verse 11, we find in this passage, again, the Lord healing a woman. Behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift herself up. And the Lord said to her, Woman, be loosed of thine infirmity. Of course, it was on the Sabbath day and there was a great deal of uproar by some on, on, on that behalf. But he said to them, What a hypocrite you are. You'd help an animal that was in trouble. Why should we not loose this woman from the bonds of Satan, Satan has bound her these 18 years. And somebody says, well, that's demon possession. Maybe it was, but I don't know any particular reason to, to demand that. Was, Satan, was, was Job demon possessed? All I know is she was bound of Satan 18 years. And her problem then was corrected by the blessing of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 Paul famously wrote, Lest I should be exalted above measure because of the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He said, My grace is sufficient for you. And I've learned that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We ask the question, Whatever this thorn was, let's just assume for a moment it was some physical malady. Where did it come from? Well, Paul said it was the messenger of Satan. Did Satan want to try to keep Paul humble? Did Satan want to try to make, him, make Paul strong? Of course not. God allowed something for one purpose. Satan was trying to do something else. But I believe that Satan was working on Paul. Uh, when it comes to sowing bad seed, we see the world filled with all kinds of false religion and false notions. Where does that come from? Just an accident? Just a consequence of the fall and no more? I'll tell you what the Lord said about it. And he's told the parable of the, of the wheat and the tares. He said, an enemy has done this. It's not an accident. This was done purposefully. And the enemy he identifies here as the devil. Satan comes when the word falls upon the wayside soil and he snatches away the word. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not. Let me mention one more passage if you'll bear with me just another minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7. This passage has been often discussed and, and smarter people than I am have commented about it. Um, you know, what did Paul mean when he wrote to the Thessalonians about the mystery of iniquity? The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then that wicked shall be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose working is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And people have said, well, this sounds like an individual. And they've tried to make some identification. I don't know anything about that. It, it seems to me 
that maybe in the context here, Paul a few years later wrote a letter to Timothy. It happens to be just a page over in my Bible. We call it 1 Timothy. And he used a similar expression there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And he wrote there, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up to glory. I think I know what the mystery of godliness is. It's God's plan to save man through the kingdom of God. And perhaps that's the best explanation I can think of is the other side of the coin in 2 Thessalonians. The mystery of iniquity is the devil's plan to destroy man and to hinder the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you who he, who he has success with. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he writes, or Paul writes, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they might believe a lie and be damned who had uh, no love of the truth, he says. They believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, what's he telling us? He's telling us that the devil works on the hearts and he finds success with those who don't love the truth. With them, he can find a way to distract them. He can find a way to, to direct them in another direction. Um, somebody made this parallel. They said, you know, when the Lord um, called Jonah, called him to go to, to Nineveh, go to Assyria. Jonah didn't want to do that, so he went down, found a boat going to Tarshish and tried to go the opposite direction. And this fellow made the point. He said, you know, whatever work that God is calling you to do, if you refuse to do that and rebel against what you know is the will of God, the devil's job is to make sure there's always a boat going to Tarshish for you. And I believe that's exactly the work of the devil. And I believe he's about that and about that personally. He and his uh, his minions. We don't have time to talk about how that the devil also opens doors, I think, at weak moments. What did Paul say to couples who might be apart from each other? Satan will tempt you for your incontinency. What did Paul write to the Ephesians? He said, if you give place to the, you give place to the devil by allowing anger to linger, uh, and so on. So, let me bring this to a close. I do not want to give you the idea that the devil is so overwhelming we have no choice or no chance. There's always an opportunity to win. And by the power of God, not only we can win, but we will win. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter wrote, we can resist the devil steadfast in the faith. Realizing that the very temptations that we face have been faced and won by others. Finally, in Ephesians chapter 6, and verse 10, that great passage, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then there's that line in verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. As a young student, when I read this passage, I misread it. And I read it something along this line. Having done all to stand, do all you can to stand. That's not what he's saying. 
I think the sense is given here. Of course, the, the, the oldest manuscripts don't have punctuation. But that comma expresses exactly what Paul is saying there. It helps us understand what he's saying there. He's saying, if you will put on the whole armor, if you do all, you're going to win. You will stand. It's a promise. Some of the modern speech translations read that way. When you've done everything you could, you will be able to stand. Job did. He said, as long as breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, my tongue will not utter deceit, till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me, I will hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. We have an enemy that seeks earnestly to destroy. And I, I want us to never be under any other, other idea that we are hunted every day. And if we don't hold to God, we'll be destroyed. But if we hold to Him, we can't lose. And I hope that simple reminder will be of use to you. We ask you now, if you're ready to obey the gospel, if you desire to become a Christian, why not tonight respond to His invitation? If you're here as one who has a child of God, if you need the prayers of the saints, if there's some way we can assist you and help you in returning to the Lord, then let us know and we'd be glad to assist you even right now while we stand and while we sing.